you have a Bible with you, would you get it in your hands and turn to Psalm chapter 19. We started a study on this psalm earlier in the summer and we're going to keep going for several more weeks and we're reading it over and over and over again, hopefully to a point that it will just settle on your heart. Psalm chapter 19. David writes these words, King David. Listen to what he says. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there's nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Now let's pray together. Father in heaven, these things that David writes about are they're powerful. If we will pay attention, the power within this teaching can, it can shape us by drawing us near to you. And I pray, Lord, that we will pay attention. David would write so beautifully of how you have revealed yourself through all creation. We can just look around and see that. But then he says, if we'll look deep into who you are, into your word, and into your character, we can know you. So I pray we will. I pray, Lord, that we will know you. I'm asking that in Jesus' name. Amen. Take a look again there and... Psalm 19 at verse 8 with me, just the, the first part of it. David says, the precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. Now let me just be transparent with you for a moment or two. I have really struggled putting this message together. Now I have not struggled in content, not at all, just in presentation. And it was very difficult for me as I was trying to get started in bringing this message together. And it got more difficult as I just continued struggling through it until I, I decided to take a step back, pick up a few books, and just read a bit in each one of them to see if it could spark my imagination and get me thinking the right way. And I didn't have to do that very long before I found what I needed. I want to share it with you this morning. I discovered it in a book written by Toby Mack and Michael Tate called Under God. Now, the whole premise of this book is it's a series of short stories based on truth and 
fact, but short stories that they put together to talk about how our nation, how our country was formed. I found what I was looking for not very far into the book. It is titled, A Declaration of Dependence Upon God. Now again, this is by Toby Mack and Michael Tate. Listen close, this is really good. Thomas Jefferson stretched and yawned loudly. He was completely drained of thought and empty of rhetoric. But he was finished writing the Declaration of Independence. He smiled proudly. He was very pleased with the final draft. In fact, the whole process had been amazing. It was as if he were a container that had been filled over the years with bits and pieces, a phrase here, a concept there. And all of it had been waiting, waiting for this moment. When he sat down to write, the words began to flow out. Majestic, powerful, poetic words. Words that would change all history. He had such a sense of purpose, of destiny, as he wrote. He lost track of time. Someone had brought him food and he had eaten, but all he could remember were the beautiful words coming out of the depths of his being. The next day, Thomas approached the other four committee members chosen by the Continental Congress to work on the Declaration of Independence. He could hardly wait to show them the genius of his workmanship. At first, they were amazed that he had finished the draft so quickly. Then they were amazed at what he had written. It was magnificent. When in the course of human events, perfect. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. That is good. Governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. I wouldn't change a word. Thomas Jefferson closed his eyes, basking in the praises of the older statesman. It was the highlight of his life. Then the congressman from Massachusetts broke his reverie. I would like to add the words... They are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, said John Adams. Where, Thomas asked, right after all men are created equal. Benjamin Franklin nodded in agreement. Oh, that's good. Yes. And what about toward the end, let's insert with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence. Thomas was offended. Government by committee was an exciting concept, but writing by committee left a lot to be desired. The committee of five continued to work together, making small changes until they agreed the Declaration of Independence was ready to present to the Continental Congress, if Congress was finally ready to declare independence. They would soon know their draft would be presented when the delegates reconvened on July 1st, 1776. Then they would vote on whether to break with Great Britain. The choice was not a decision that our founding fathers made lightly. In fact, they had tried everything else First, A year earlier, on July 5, 1775, Congress had sent the Olive Branch Petition directly to King George III, asking for his help in making peace. But the king refused to even look at it. Famous British parliamentarians argued for America's cause, but none of their arguments moved King George. In his eyes, there was only one way to deal with rebellion, crush the rebels by military force. He declared war. But never in Britain's history was recruiting volunteers so difficult. The recruiting officers were tarred and feathered in Wales and stoned in Ireland. In the previous war, 300,000 men had volunteered. Now not even 50,000 had come forward. King George was forced to hire mercenaries from Germany who were willing to fight the Americans. 
Despite the fact that England had declared war, many congressional delegates were still hoping for a way to reconcile. Only eight of the 13 colonies had voted to declare independence. Then on June 7, 1776, news came that King George's hired mercenaries were coming to America to fight. In response, Richard Henry Lee of Virginia formally proposed to Congress that the colonies declare their independence. Congress postponed its decision until July, so those delegates who were uncertain could check with the people they represented. When they reconvened, the resolution for independence was adopted by 12 of the 13 colonies, with New York abstaining. Congress then began to discuss the wording of the Declaration. The changes demonstrated Congress's strong reliance upon God as delegates added the words appealing to the supreme judge of the world for the restitute of our intentions. In the center section are the complaints against King George that made independence necessary. Surprisingly, the reason given by modern history books, taxation without representation, is not at the top of the list. In fact, it was 17th in a list of 27 grievances including 11 points on abuse of representative powers, seven on abuse of military powers, and four on abuse of judicial powers. The revisions continued into the late afternoon of July 4th, when at last, church bells rang out over Philadelphia. The declaration had been officially adopted. One of the most widely held misconceptions about the declaration is that it was signed on July 4th, 1776, by all the delegates in attendance. In fact, it wasn't officially signed until August 2nd. On that day, John Hancock, the president of Congress, was the first to sign. He signed with a flourish, using a big, bold signature centered below the text. Then, one by one, the other delegates were called upon, beginning with the northernmost states. Each man knew what he risked. To the British, this was treason, and the penalty for treason was death by hanging. Benjamin Franklin said, Indeed, we must all hang together, otherwise we shall most assuredly hang separately. William Ellerly, a delegate from Rhode Island, inched his way to stand near the desk where the delegates were signing their names. He was curious to see their faces as each committed this supreme act of courage. Ellery later reported that he was not able to discern real fear on anyone's face. One man's hand shook badly. Stephen Hopkins, also from Rhode Island, he was in his 60s and was quick to explain, my hand trembles, but my heart does not. A pensive and awful silence filled the room as one delegate after another signed what many at that time believed to be their own death warrants. The only sound was the calling of the names and the scratch of the pen. Then the silence and heaviness of the morning were interrupted by the tall, sturdily built Colonel Benjamin Harrison of Virginia, who told the slender Elbridge Jerry of Massachusetts, I shall have a great advantage over you, Mr. Jerry, when we are all hung for what we're doing now. With me, it will all be over in a minute, but you'll be dancing on air an hour after I'm gone. In the end, no signer was hung for treason, though many suffered greatly for their stand. I really like this last part. We're going to put it up on the screen. For these men who mutually pledged to each other their lives, their fortunes, their sacred honor, this was more than a declaration. It was more than a document. It was a covenant, the most solemn, the most sacred of human agreements. They understood that God himself was witness of their actions. In declaring their independence from earthly power and authority, our founding fathers declared their dependence upon Almighty God with firm reliance on the protection of divine providence. 
Like the pilgrims before them, they fully expected God to keep his side of the covenant as they obeyed his word and followed his spirit. They were not disappointed. I really like how Toby Mack and Michael Tate finished this out. They put two quotes, one from Samuel Adams and one from John Adams, right after they finished telling that story. Take a look at these quotes. I'm well aware of the toil and blood and treasure that it will cost us to maintain this declaration and support and defend these states. Yet through all the gloom, I can see rays of ravishing light and glory. I can see that the end is worth more than all the means. John Adams. Now take a look at Samuel Adams. We have this day restored the sovereign to whom alone men ought to be obedient. He reigns in heaven, and from the rising to the setting sun may his kingdom come. Wow. All of that writing, everything that we just heard, the Declaration of Independence itself and how it came about is based on the precepts of God, the precepts of the Bible. That's why I liked that so much. It really just started to stir for me what I needed it to stir, to get my mind going the right way. And that brought me right back to Psalm chapter 19, verse 8. Listen again. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. This word precepts, when we get into Bible study, can be quite confusing for a lot of people. It really can. And as a result of that, not many people decide to get into the meat of it, into the heart of it. But the teaching itself about the precepts of the Lord can really change, if not shape, your life and your walk with the Lord. But you have to decide to get into them. And before we can decide to get into the precepts, it's probably necessary for us to understand what they are. Here's a good place to begin. Take a look. Any commandment, instruction, or order intended as a rule of action or conduct. In the scriptures, the word translated precept is a general term for the responsibility God places upon his people. Precepts are guiding truths which have the good of the individual in mind. Precepts are guiding principles rather than legal restrictions. Those who follow precepts acknowledge God's guidance in their lives and their dependence upon him. Precepts encourage responsibility, promote truth, are beneficial, and acknowledge dependence. They assist us in discovering what God is doing in our lives so that we can cooperate with Him rather than compete with Him. That's really good. That is really good. I would add to that this statement. Precepts are guidelines that, if followed, can lead to an unexpected and unprecedented life of both freedom and righteousness. That's what we can find when we decide to get into the precepts of God. Yet we still find ourselves hotly confused about what they are because we want to take the term precept and make it synonymous with a law. But law and precept is different. It is different in practice. It is different in scripture. The biggest difference between law and precept is found in the consequences for breaking them. When we break a law, we expect judgment to fall on us. When you break a precept, what you're doing is really making a choice that causes division. Those are the consequences. Law brings judgment. Law brings harsh judgment. Break it, you know. 
But to break a precept is to make a choice that causes division. Now that's true in almost any application, but possibly never more so true than in the study of the Bible. So I want you to understand a little more of what the Bible says itself about this idea of precept. But that can be difficult depending on what translation of the Bible you use because the word precept is often translated as rule, particularly in modern translations. So it can be hard to jump into what you're holding in your hands and really get to dig into precepts. So I did a study this last week of all translations of the Bible and the use of the word precept. Well, that sounds daunting, doesn't it? It makes you think that I had every translation of the Bible open in front of me in a concordance that's tied to every one of them. There's software that makes this very, very easy. So don't think, hey, this was just something spectacular. I just used some software that did the work for me. But here's what we found. I want to show you seven examples of the use of the word precept from different translations of the Bible. Take a look. We'll walk through them fast. We won't spend a lot of time with them. This is Deuteronomy chapter 11, verse 1 from the Amplified Version. Therefore, you shall love the Lord your God and always keep his charge, his statutes, his precepts, and his commandments. See how there's a difference? They're not all the same. They're not all synonymous. They are broken out one from the other. Now, moving on, here's number two. Also from the Amplified Version, this is 1 Kings chapter 2, verse 3. Keep the charge of the Lord your God. Walk in his ways, keep his statutes, his commandments, his precepts, and his testimonies, as it is written in the law of Moses, so that you may succeed in everything that you do and wherever you turn. Now here's number three. Whatever he does is reliable and just. All his precepts are trustworthy. Psalm chapter 11, verse 7, from a number of different translations. Here's number four. From Hosea chapter 8, verse 12, God says these words, Though I wrote for him 10,000 precepts of my law, they are regarded as a strange thing. And in Hosea, God's saying, people just chose to ignore my precepts. They looked at them like strange things. Number five, for you know what commandments and precepts we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. Now this is the New Testament talking about the same thing. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 2 from the Amplified Version. Number 6, still in the New Testament. 1 John chapter 2, verse 5, Amplified Version. Or 1 John 2, 5. <clears throat> or 1 John, no, I'm sorry, 1 John chapter 2, verse 5. I'm getting ahead of myself. But whoever habitually keeps his word and obeys his precepts, in him the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in him. And now, number 7. This comes from 2 John, verse 6, only one chapter. And this is love, that we walk in accordance with his commandments and are guided continually by his precepts. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, that you should walk in love. The word precept is all through the Bible, Old Testament and New. When you find them, when you find them, they have the ability to literally, physically, spiritually shape your walk with God. They're powerful. They are powerful. The simple teaching of it is we have to go looking for them. We have to dig them up. And then we have to do some work with them. 
Now, it may be entirely impossible to find an easier precept in Scripture than this one found in Matthew chapter 22. Why don't you turn there with me? Keep your finger in Psalm chapter 19, but turn to Matthew 22. We'll pick up in verse 34. Matthew 22, verse 34. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Now certainly, Jesus is taking the commandments and he is repeating them based on the question that he was asked. But when he repeats them, he boils down the commandments into a precept. One that I would simply sum up this way. Love God, love people. That's the precept. Easy for us to follow. Once we discover it, it's easy. Now, you need to know that this actually has a name attached to it. It is called the moral precept of Christianity or the moral code of Christianity. Again, we'll put that up on the screen for you to see. The moral precept of Christianity or the moral code of Christianity. It might help you to think of precepts as codes by which we live. When we find them in Scripture, when we discover them, they change us. We begin to live by them, and they bring about certain effects within us that become visible in our walk with God. Now, I want to illustrate this for you in a very personal way. So I'm going to take a precept that has been a long-time struggle for me personally, and it is still a struggle for me personally. I've known it for years, and then I have ignored it, I have pushed it away, I have stepped over the top of it, and I have just tried to not do anything with it at all. And shame on me for that. Shame on me. Let me show it to you. It's found in Psalm chapter 46. Psalm 46, verse 10, and I'm just going to read the first part of it. The psalmist says, be still and know that I am God. That is a precept. If you are a note taker in your Bible, you might want to write precept in the margin of your Bible next to that. That is a precept in Scripture. Now, it is a precept that becomes a discipline. Stillness is a precept that becomes a discipline. And when we start applying the discipline, the precept comes to life for us. But this has been a hard one for me, just as it has been hard for a lot of people I have not wanted to look at it the way I should because it causes changes in my life and in my way of thinking and the way I conduct myself that I don't necessarily want. And so I've tried to avoid the precept and certainly tried to avoid the discipline. But today I address it differently. Now in precept understanding, there are ways for us to take a passage like this and really dig into it. And that's what you have to do with a precept. You have to dig into it. So let me illustrate for you what I mean by that. And here's where the illustration comes from. 
Not long after I decided to use this passage to illustrate what we're talking about, a longtime friend of mine, she was the wife of one of the ministers that I grew up with at Westlink Christian Church, Wichita, Kansas. She was a good friend of my mother, became like a sister to her. Her name's Ida Applegate. Ida posted this on Facebook. Isn't it strange how God can at times use Facebook to validate some things in our lives? This popped up on my page right after I decided to use this passage. Hmm. Here it is. This is a precept way of attaching or attacking a verse of Scripture. Be still and know that I am God. Now you take the first part of it, be still, and you have to further define the idea in order for it to become a precept that is a discipline in our life that produces great results. So you take be still and then realize that that means stop talking, switch off your phone, stop commenting, listen, stop arguing, stop questioning, and stop moaning. That's stillness. I'm going to be still. Now, the second part of the psalmist's teaching has to do with our head. I'm choosing now to be still with my body, but my head's got to get involved in this so that I have to know. So the and know part of it, we can further define through stop doubting, be sure, have faith, no second opinions. No second opinions. That's what God said, and I believe it. So I'm going to be still, and I am going to know that He is God. To further break that down, looks like this. God is almighty. God is in control. God is love. God is king. God is my hope, rock, fortress. God is ever-present to help in times of trouble. God is my father. God is my shepherd. He will lead me, nourish me, protect me, and restore me. Now that's a precept way of attacking this passage, this whole idea. You've got to slow way down, and you've got to get into it, digging into it, turning over the dirt of it and looking for what it really means in your life. By the way, a number of you were taking pictures. This is also on the church app under sermon notes. If you want to look, you'll see this so that you don't have to be distracted through the picture taking, but there's also value in that. So be sure and take a picture if you would like. That's a way of going about this. It is a slow Bible study technique that puts you right into some deep, deep teaching that can reshape you. Now, when we get into the idea of studying precepts in the Bible, there are some places in Scripture that outline it for us. I want to show you one of those in Isaiah chapter 28. Isaiah 28, starting in verse 9. This is far and away the most popular passage in all the Bible about precept teaching. Now, I tell you that there's great teaching in it, but there's a great warning that goes with it. So let's start with the great teaching. Listen to this. Verse 9, to whom will he teach knowledge and to whom will he explain the message? Those who are weaned from the milk, those taken from the breast. For it is precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little. Now that is great teaching. That's how we grow up in the Word of God. We have to be weaned from the milk and get into the meat of the Word. Precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line. We've got to slow down and really study the Word of God. Now, precept teaching, precept understanding says that's how I'm going to study Scripture. But Isaiah chapter 28, when we read this part, that's not necessarily positive. That's not necessarily positive. That is God saying, there are a whole lot of people that have done that. 
They have invested everything they have in precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line. In essence, all they have done is take in knowledge. They're like a sponge that has absorbed all the water it can, but it is never pushed. And so the water never goes back out. So in this particular part of Isaiah chapter 28, God's not saying this is a great thing, but he brings it around. Sometimes when we're reading for content, we also got to read for context. So let's read for context at the end of chapter 28. Verse 23. Give ear and hear my voice. Give attention and hear my speech. Does he who plows for sowing plow continually? Does he continually open and harrow his ground? When he has leveled its surface, does he not scatter dill, sow cumin, and put in wheat and rose and barley in its proper place, and to emmer as the border? For he is rightly instructed, his God teaches him. So here's the full teaching on it. You got to plow. Certainly, line by line, line by line, precept by precept. But then you got to plant. You got to put some seeds in. And you have to plant in accordance with what you are seeking to harvest, what you're wanting to reap. And there is a harvest when we plant the right seeds. The harvest of what we plant is what we will reap. The harvest is defined through things like the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. If you're wanting to reap those things, to harvest those things, you have to plant the right seeds. Plant the right seeds and you'll get it. But you got to turn over the dirt line by line, precept by precept, precept by precept, line by line. You plow through the dirt, then you plant the seeds so that you can harvest the crop. That's the way it works. Now again, back on my illustration of Psalm chapter 46, I can plow the dirt looking all through Scripture about stillness and how it is evident all through the Bible. I'm plowing the dirt. But i got to plant the seeds. So I have two seeds in particular that help me with this. These wouldn't be your seeds. These are the seeds that work for me. But they're mine. It's my horse and my dog. Both of them help me with stillness. Now let me explain that to you. My horse removes me from everyday life. Changes how I have to approach things. The horse was a gift to me when I was turning 40 years old for my wife to say, you got to figure this out and you got to figure it out fast. And I'm still working on figuring it out. That was 14 years ago. But my horse helps. My horse helps. My dog causes me to slow down and helps me practice stillness. This is specifically how, because I have a very fast dog, so it can make you wonder how this works. I have a trail on our property. It's a little over a third of a mile long. I walk Kinley on it every morning, every morning. I walk it in the rain. I walk it in the sunshine. I walk it in the snow every morning with the sole purpose, not of walking Kinley, but of starting my day in slowness because I need to start in slowness because if I don't start in slowness, I will not find it. So I need to start in slowness. So that is a discipline that for years now I've been doing. And here I'll tell you a little more about it. I don't invite anyone to go with me. That is my time with God. Kinley is the seed that makes it happen. The effect of it is my time with the Lord. I spend about 10 minutes every morning just walking that trail. Conversations are wonderful between the Lord and I and sometimes they're very quiet. Just stillness. Just stillness. There's only two people that I have invited to interrupt that. 
Those are my granddaughters. They're the only ones that have gone with me. Otherwise, I don't want anybody else to go with me. That's my time. And it is purposeful. It's about stillness. Plant the seeds so that you harvest the crop that you're after. If you need to plant seeds of love, you plant seeds of love. If you need to plant seeds of joy, you plant seeds of joy. Peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Whatever it is that you're seeking to harvest, plow the dirt in the Bible to see what Scripture has to say about it and then plant the right seeds so that you reap the harvest. Precept upon precept, line upon line until you get to where you need to be. And when that harvest comes, when that harvest comes, and it does, you plow the dirt and plant the seed, the harvest will come. When it comes, look at what David says will happen. Psalm 19 again. Psalm 19, verse 8. The precepts are of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. When you start reaping the rewards of that, the harvest of it, it will rejoice your heart. That's a love term. That's really what that is. That is a love term. Here's the way I would illustrate that. In 1987, I was sitting in a class at Manhattan Christian College. I was staring out the window in the parking lot. I was staring out the window because the professor, quite honestly, was boring. And so I was looking outside, my mind completely distracted, when I saw this girl walk across the parking lot. She caught my eye. I spent the rest of that class saying, I will get to know who that is. I have to find out who that is. I had never seen her before. It was in September of that year. I had never seen her before. And instantly I thought, I am in love with what I see. And I was. That was in 1987. That girl, her name's Tina. She's sitting on the front row. She wouldn't say she was in love until 88. So it took her a little while to, <laughs> took her a little while to catch up. We were just talking about this the other day. We were driving, and, and I said, you know, my heart still leaps when I see you in a room. I might be in a conversation with somebody else, and when I catch you out of the corner of my eye, my, my heart rejoices. My heart leaps. That's what that means. It rejoices the heart. It causes your heart to leap. It's this love relationship with God that causes us to experience something deep within us. It's the same thing. It is the same thing. Learn the precepts of the Lord. They're right. And they will rejoice your heart. So plow the dirt, plant the seed that you might harvest this righteous relationship with God. And you might say, man, I want to study precepts. I really do. Preacher, help me do it. I'm glad you're interested at that level. Here's some ways to do it. Number one, they're all going to be up here again. These are on the app or take a picture, whatever works for you. Number one, first acknowledge God is the Lord of the harvest. Whatever it is that you are seeking to reap, acknowledge that the Lord is the Lord of the harvest. Matthew chapter 9, verse 38. And then number two, plow the dirt. Do the work. Matthew 13, 1 through 9 and 18 through 23. Number three, plant the seeds you want to harvest. Galatians 5, 22 through 23. There's the fruits of the Spirit. Number four, watch over your fields. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 20. And here's why I put this in here. Because the minute you start studying the precepts of the Lord, you better expect, listen, you better expect that the enemy is going to come in and try to tear it up. When you start planting those seeds, he's going to try to dig them up and he will try to steal from you what you are doing with the Lord. So you watch over your field. And number five, enjoy a harvest of righteousness. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 10. Once you apply all of that, 
Let me just give you a glimpse of what it looks like. This is James chapter 5. I'm going to start in verse 13. Or James chapter 3. That's why that didn't make sense. Starting in verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where, where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. That's what it looks like. That's what the harvest looks like. Plant the right things. Plow the dirt. Get into God's word. Find the precepts. Plant the right seeds and enjoy the harvest. Live in the harvest.